Welcome to Local Selection, the podcast on a quest to make local representation sexy. I'm Brian Hastert, and our guest today is Maury Turner, Oklahoma State Representative for House District 88. So a few episodes ago, I mentioned this 7,700-mile road trip I took around the country last summer to meet and talk to the coolest local and state-level elected officials I could find, wherever I could find them. The last four episodes' interviews were recorded live on that tour, as were the coming 14 or so episodes that I've got lined up. And so was today's interview with Oklahoma State Representative Maury Turner. And all of those conversations are amazing. (laughs) Truly. I was profoundly affected by them, each of them. I will literally never look at this country the same again after what I learned from these folks, not just about how the way things are now, but also the way things could be, and how surprisingly passable that gulf between those two points actually is, but only if we bring each other along. We cannot get there alone, we cannot get there in small numbers, we gotta bring everyone we can. As powerful as the rest of those conversations are, this one you're about to hear is special. And I'll tell you why. Maury Turner is the whole reason I launched this trip. I read about them after their victory in 2020, about the first non-binary person being elected to a state-level office anywhere in the country. About them becoming the first Muslim person sworn into the Oklahoma State Legislature. About them unseating an incumbent in order to do all this. And accomplishing this feat in their mid-20s. And I read that they are fighting to reimagine criminal justice and fighting to protect people living outside the gender binary and fighting to create an environment where everyone can thrive. And did I mention that they're doing this in Oklahoma? Have you heard of Oklahoma? Oklahoma is, by some metrics, the most conservative state in the union. When I think of Oklahoma politicians, I think of people like James Inhofe, who brought a snowball onto the floor of the United States Senate to prove that global warming wasn't real. But here was Maury Turner, not merely being who they are and believing what they believe, but actually getting elected to a state-level office to advocate for those things in the halls of power. I just felt like I needed to meet this person. In person, not on Zoom. In their state, in their town, in their context. I honestly think that I was fueled by gratitude, I wanted to say, wow, you did something hard. You taught people that something is possible that they didn't know was possible, and that is really hard to do. Congratulations, and thank you. I wanted them to know that their work was affecting some guy as far away as California, and I wanted to introduce them to you so that you could be affected too. The only problem with all of this is that Maury and I hadn't met, um, we weren't even in touch, and I wasn't having much luck with cold emails. So I decided just to chance it. I, um, I decided to start driving and hope that fate would intervene and make an introduction. But I didn't want to risk that whole drive on one all-or-nothing bet, so I decided to make a whole tour out of it. Not that I had any other interviews scheduled when I left either. I didn't. But I figured that if I gave fate a ton of chances to intervene and make some introductions, that she would. And she did. And thankfully, Maury Turner was one of those introductions. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. At one point, they mentioned sundown towns in Oklahoma. And for those of you who don't know, a sundown town is a town in which black people aren't welcome after sundown. Um, And they're not just in Oklahoma. You'll find them in New York, California, 
all over Illinois, and, um, well, they're everywhere. At another point, Maury mentions encountering people in their work at the Capitol who are willing to hurt themselves in order to tear down others. And if you want to, uh, to learn more about this stupefying variety of racism, let me recommend in the highest possible terms Heather McGee's podcast, The Sum of Us. She is a brilliant chronicler of instances of what she terms drained pool racism, named after the phenomenon where white people, when faced with new laws saying they had to integrate their whites-only swimming pools, they drained them instead so that no one, not even them, could swim in them anymore, rather than be forced to share them with black people. In talking about police violence, Maury mentions the names of several people who were killed by law enforcement in Oklahoma. And I bring up the Mapping Police Violence Project. So I'm going to link to articles about each of those individuals and that study that I mentioned in the show notes if you would like to learn more about them. Since we recorded this interview, um, some ugly things have happened in Oklahoma politics. A bill was passed just recently by the legislature and signed into law by the governor that will withhold $40 billion in federal COVID aid from the Oklahoma University Hospital if that hospital continues providing age-appropriate, medically necessary, gender-affirming care to trans individuals. And just a few days ago, a group of young medical professionals came to the Capitol building in a show of support for the trans youth and their families that are affected by this new hateful law. Maury spoke with them afterwards, and I, I just need you to hear this for yourself. Um, this, is, this is from Maury's Instagram account. It was hard for folks to see that intersection between our communities of color and trans folks who also need these bands, right? I want to tell you, Oklahoma has the money to make sure that we get these facilities funded, right? And we do not have to wage war and use our children as pawns to do so. We will never have to do that. And for anybody to tell us that, and for any leadership that you see, make sure that they know those things, right? These are our tax dollars. The federal money that's coming down is also our tax dollars. So the folks that say, I don't want to take that federal money, that's our money too. They just don't know how government works. <laughs> and so I can't say thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. I think uh, this is the most love, the most fight, honestly, the most spiritual I've felt in this building in a long time. And that's because of you. You allow me to be able to show up for every day when it's hard. I've got to deal with people asking me what I have between my legs, right? i got to deal with so many things that are unseen in our heart. Now we do it time and time again. And I want you to know that I put my life on the line every day for you and for our communities and the people that we care for. Because I want you to have a little piece of what my mom gave me. A little piece of the Oklahoma I know we can build together. God, and I'm so thankful for you. Because I couldn't do it without you. And I wouldn't want you. So, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is the person I drove across the country to meet. They're doing something special in Oklahoma. They're running for re-election right now. And this is the platform that they're standing on. Stick around after the interview for details on how to support their work and get involved if so moved. I met Maury Turner at Sincerely Coffee Roasters, which is this fabulous little coffee shop in the heart of House District 88. I'm going to really need you to up your imagination theater game for today because there were, um, there were plenty of real-life things happening around us. As you listen, um, I want you to imagine 
around you the steaming of milk for lattes. I had the cereal milk latte at Maury's suggestion, and mwah, it was so good. Imagine the smell and the sound of grinding coffee beans. Imagine the occasional loud truck just outside the windows, annoyingly enough. Imagine other customers with big, boisterous laughs in the not-too-distant background. And in the midst of all of this, imagine yourself sitting at a table next to one city slicker fella from California with a couple of microphones and, uh, how do they put it? One queer, non-binary, oaky Muslim from straight down the I-35 corridor. Well, you're from a pretty small town, right? Yeah. What yeah. town are you from? Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh-huh. It's yeah. not one of the Oklahoma towns I'm familiar with, I guess. Right, yeah. So um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, like right before you cross into Texas. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so... When people talk about the Red River rivalry, are you near the Red River? Yeah, yeah, probably about uh, 30, maybe 45 minutes from it. Okay, yeah. 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 Um, okay, I just want to make sure I ask... On your email and on your website, you say your pronouns are they, them. But in some older, like some uh, articles from around the election, it also says she, they. Yeah. And my sense is that's either, was either wrong when they printed it or, or maybe there's been an evolution since then. But I want to make yes. sure I'm correct. Yes, there has been an evolution since then. That's okay. a lovely way to put it. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, I think, it, quite honestly, um, uh, just people would never use, thank you so much. Thank you. People would never use my they them pronouns. If she right? was an option. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, and I feel like I had said it plenty of times to be like, you know, like it's wonderful if you use them like interchangeably. That's perfect. And people just like would never do it. So I was like, let's just drop it then, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. That so. makes perfect sense to me, I think. So in addition to being the first non-binary person elected to any state legislature anywhere and the first Muslim person elected to a state office in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't read this, but I'm pretty sure you're the first person elected to a state office with this piercing right here. Yeah, smiley. What, Maybe so. <laughs> what is that called? It's called the, I think like the colloquial term is a smiley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After my... <laughs> it's, I, I don't, I can't remember ever having come across it before, but it is really cool. It's like a Thank really you. cool piercing. It was a, I didn't, like semi-quarter life, semi-like bad breakup. I uh, <laughs> I was like, one day I was leaving my apartment and I just wanted to go to uh, Target to get a lamp. And I leave and as I'm like driving, I'm like, you know what? Because I had been thinking about it earlier in the week and I was like, let me just go do it. And so I, at that point in time, I lived around the street from 23rd Street body piercings and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go do it. So I walked in wow. in a very impulsive manner and then I walked around for about 45 minutes while I tried to make <laughs> I tried to make sure that it was a decision I really wanted to make uh, then I got the piercing then I went to Target I got my lamp and then I went home <laughs> so and so that's been a couple of years now I guess yes yes I think I had turned I think I just turned 25 maybe uh-huh so. and at the time were you thinking was so that was just, that was like three years ago mm -hmm. at that point in your life were you like I'm gonna run for office one day or has that not crossed your mind yet? No. Oh, and just kidding. It wasn't when I turned 25. It was when I turned 26. Oh, so even more recent. Yeah. Um, and absolutely no. Uh, I had had a conversation. I was like, because I've got my nose pierced to my septum. And usually I will wear like this bull ring. And I think I was talking to a friend at the time. And I was like, 
is it too childish? Like, should I get a different piece of jewelry? Like, that was my thing. But that was because, like, I worked for the ACLU, and I was like, I work in and around politics now. Like, is that something I should be worried about? Right. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. That's like, why I ask, because I feel like if you had, had if you had designs of running for public office one day, you'd be like, maybe I shouldn't have, like, piercings in my face in a visible way. But I think, you know... In so many ways, you defy what people imagine an Oklahoma state politician would look like. Absolutely. When I've talked about you, like before you and I got in touch, before like I was talking about the fact of you and my excitement about like potentially hopefully meeting you one day, like real fangirl stuff. And people, and and then I'd be like, and they're you know in Oklahoma, and they're like, what? What Oklahoma? (laughs) Are you surprised that you? are an elected representative in Oklahoma, or are you, does that make a lot of sense to you? <clears throat> I think both. Um, uh, I think surprised because every now and then I'm just like, wait a minute, that's me, right? I'm a yeah. representative now. And uh, I told myself, like, throughout college, I was like, I'm, I'm never going to run for office. This was like, I'm getting a, trying to get a political science degree, right? Um, uh, and I'm like, I'll never run for office, but like would always dedicate my time to running on a worthwhile campaign, right? Like to working on one. And so I was like, I can do whatever I want to do, you know? Um, but then people started asking me and when I started to take it a little bit more seriously, I was like, okay. And then I got elected and I was like, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and But for me, it's like kind of short spurts of, this is surreal. Usually I'm like, okay, we're here. We got to do the work. I get that attitude from my mom. She's always like, okay, and now the work begins. I got elected. She looked at me. She shed a couple of tears and she said, now the work begins. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. so, That's so um, sweet and also so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was like, and so like, that's just kind of the mentality I've adopted. I don't ever really get too excited about something, but every now and then I'm like, oh, like, yeah, I get to do this work. Like, and yeah. it's really amazing. So On the subject of your mom, I was yeah. reading, you have written on your website, maybe some other places too. You talk about, you're like, you're a very diligent student, but if you were to miss classes in like grade school, elementary school, (laughs) it was because you wrote that your mom was taking you to like HIV AIDS awareness events Mm -hmm. or to LGBTQ plus events. Yeah. And I was like, that's maybe the coolest mom I've like ever yeah. heard of. What is the story? Like, is your mom as cool as she appears in those moments? And w- like, yeah. what sort of influence is she in your life? Yes, um, probably hundreds of times more like cooler than how I highlight her. Right, and like when I was growing up, I always. My other siblings, they would always get embarrassed, but I always had this thing of like how I could never be embarrassed, like of my mom, right? Like she's, and I think that's just kind of like part of growing up. You're like, oh, my parents, embarrassing. But my mom has always been so much cooler than me. My friends would be like, saw your mom today, like so cool, like like always. And I'm like, I, I wish I was this popular, right? Um, yeah. uh, so the thing with going to these community conversations, these listening sessions, these support groups um, was kind of, maybe like a win-win, in my case anyway. Yeah. So my mom um, worked for the state, right, in health. And so, but we couldn't afford a babysitter, right? So when they had to send her away on a conference or something like that, like we all got to load up and go. Um, uh, and so things like that, right? And so like if I was sick or something, I would 
go and sit in like the break room of uh, of like our local health department because no babysitters, things like that, right? right and so, right. Um, uh, like if it was like during school hours or something. And so, um, yes, I learned so much, right? And it helped me grapple. Honestly, it helped me kind of realize like the cycle of life, so to speak. Because, like, I would be there. This was, like, in the 90s, right? Um, uh, and so I'd be there at these conferences, and then we'll go and see some, like, go and see, like, the, the people um, a couple months later. And you'd be like, oh, okay, like, where's such a so-and-so? And it'd be like, you know, we lost another one of our, our friends, right, our family to, to, to HIV or AIDS, right? Um, and so it kind of gave me an insight into to loss and what it looked like, right, for community care, right, through all of that. It's so. so interesting that you put that in the lens of community care. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I lost my uncle to AIDS in the 90s. And, and when I think back on that time in our family or when I think about conversations people had, you know, not in New York, not in San Francisco, but like in this part of the country, right? That felt, that feels like more of a solo affair or a family affair, a very tight-knit community affair, partly because the larger community didn't want to talk about it, Mm -hmm. right, for so many political reasons, for so many whatever reasons. And so it was kind of relegated to families either taking care of their sick family members or or not, right? And the fact that you had an influence who was helping you see health private health concerns in a societal way as part of a community health crisis, that strikes me as like foresightful for the moment in time. Mm -hmm. And that was here in Oklahoma. Do you think that, I think the popular conception of Oklahoma is it's a very conservative state. Yeah. And, And my sense is from what's been going on recently in Oklahoma, that remains true. Do you think that there are pockets of Oklahoma or sort of like threads in Oklahoma life that um, are sort of bigger than that or broader than that? Like how do you, how do you even begin to appeal to people making the case for like the transformative kinds of programs that you're advocating for? Yeah, I think, so you mentioned kind of a couple of things, right? Yeah, and sorry, I think that was one a big of question. The, no, no, <laughs> I think one of the things about it is that Oklahoma isn't a red state, but its voice is real red. Um, Mm -hmm. In the sense that Oklahoma used to be deep purple, right? Um, But the way voter suppression works, right, is it's not just law and policy, but we also see in our children, right, that they become products of their environment, right? If someone tells you you're going to be great, then you might do great things, right? But if someone continuously tells you that you're not going to amount to anything, like we see that happen too. And so if your representation is continuously saying, like, I don't hear you, I, I don't, I, you're not valid, right, then you also lose that piece of your voice, right? So voter suppression, not only in policy, right, but in how this generational trauma took place around voter suppression. And so um, has turned, and because of gerrymandering too, right, has turned a lot more red. But when I knock doors in rural Oklahoma... Those are some of the most progressive conversations that I have. Really? Yeah. Um, because what, people care about, they care about healthcare and access to it, right? They care about our public education system. But the way our legislature acts, right, you would think that those people didn't exist at all. Yes. And that is not the case. 
Um, yeah, so for, for me, right, um, this idea of community care and continuously, so I moved to the city to start working for the ACLU, right? Not a city slicker by birth. Um, so you're um, fairly new to Oklahoma City. Yeah, oh, yeah. No. I moved to Oklahoma City in, like, physically in 2018. I came back from, uh, from India and Sri Lanka, did a study abroad to study nonprofits over there, started work for the ACLU the day after I got back, um, finished teaching a class at OSU, and then moved here that summer of, of 2018. And so, but my brother went to school here. Um, uh, I had a sister, one of my brothers went to school here at Oklahoma city university. Um, uh, go stars. Another sister who went to school at Langston university. I ended up going to school at, uh, Oklahoma state university. And then all of my friends went to the university of Oklahoma. Right. And then there's Ardmore and then all of my lineage between Norman and, and Ardmore. And so I've grown up mm-hmm. on this strip of I-35, right, oh, yeah. and have found home in, in House District 88 long before I knew what House Districts were, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so have this insight, right, on what it means to be in a progressive place, right, but also what it means to tap into those political voices, those um, that are in rural Oklahoma, because that's where I got my start in community organizing. Right. Um, and so I think something that we sometimes miss, right, is community organizing is also about meeting people where they are with language, right? And mm-hmm. so if you, I guess if you say it in kind of progressive vernacular, sometimes people are like, mm, absolutely not, right? But when you meet people where they are with the language that they have, right, that they care about having access to, to, to health care, right, that they want to be able to afford their insulin and also put groceries in their fridge, right? Um, uh, when you talk about these things, right, and about their connection to the justice system or public education, then those conversations and more people are a lot more progressive, right, um, uh, than our legislature leads people to believe. So. That, I feel like, tracks with what we, with what studies show or what data, mm-hmm. right, which is that if you break down policies and you take away labels, if you take away conservative labels or progressive labels or democratic conservative labels, right, and you just say, like, hey, would you like more healthcare in your life? Or would you like not? Or like, what sort of tax structure would you like? Or what, you know, when you break it down like that, people love these kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. They love a society like that. You know, around marijuana legislation, stuff like that, for sure. Yeah. But when you somehow, there's, I don't know if it's a messaging thing, or if it's a language thing, or if it's a packaging thing, or, or if it's a part of, like, the sort of 30 years of zeitgeist that we've been evolving since Reagan or whatever. Yeah. But somehow, we lose that. And I think... You know, the fact that you're willing to go knock on doors as part of your run for office, but also as part of your organizing, right? As part of like a longer thing and just have those conversations mm-hmm. can start to open people's minds up past the framing that they've been handed, Yeah, I suppose. You know, I, I know that Oklahoma is, right, this like this pocket of uh, states like right in the center, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, where I'm, you know, like I'm from around here too. And, and in the early part of the last century, mm-hmm. This was the heart of progressivism, you know, like this is where, you know, it came from. Woody Guthrie is from here, you know, yeah. and his machine killed fascists. And we all know that he <laughs> yeah. wrote it on his guitar, right? And so, you know, it's like, it's in the dirt somewhere. Yeah. By the way, is the dirt here red? It looked to me like when I was driving, like the sidewalks are like kind of reddish brown. Yeah. Oklahoma red dirt country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really cool. I thought it was really, really beautiful, actually. On the way in. Clay. Yeah. Clay. Got yeah, a lot that's, of I guess that's clay. what it would be called. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that in 90... Eight, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So um, this would have been, you are too old to really personally capitalize on this. Um, and, or, yeah, you're too old to capitalize on it, I suppose. But Oklahoma 
passed a universal pre-K law. So Oklahoma is one of the most, I would say, progressive states in the whole country yeah. in terms of making sure every kid starting at four years old has free <clears throat> state-sponsored public pre-K. Yeah. And that, to me, is an amazing thing because, A, first of all, like, that is such a gigantic, like, that's one of the most helpful things you can do in order to, like, make your society better 20 years later, right, is yeah. to have pre-K now. And B, because it's an investment that takes some time to pay off, people, conservative people, don't necessarily want to invest in it. At least yeah. that's the way it's bought and sold in our political dialogue. Mm -hmm. It won't make me a dollar now, so why worry about it? Right, right, exactly. So I guess two questions. Number one is, what do you think it is about this place that the state of Oklahoma was like ready to seize and create that opportunity mm -hmm. when so many other states are not willing to? And B, you know, it's been 20 something years. Can, do you feel like you can see an impact in the culture here having so many kids who have been able to get that access to early education? Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, Oklahoma made that shift, right? And is, is ready, like was ready at, at that time because Oklahoma is comprised of movers and shakers, right? Community organizers, right? People who, it, it, it is, I think our foundational period, right? Is that community care aspect, right? And we see that, I think, definitely with our rich history in, in, in our all black towns, right? Yeah. And I say that, right, not to negate, right, that we had all black towns because Oklahoma had a good portion of sundown towns too, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, but I think one of the big things, right, that people could get behind, not necessarily that, like, we could work on together, right, but is the fact that, like, we do, right, those blue-collar jobs all day, every day. Yeah. And I want to make sure I can take care of my family too, right, not just financially, but I want to be there for them, too. Um, uh, and so I think there's kind of like this underlying notion, right, continuously, right, that allows us to, to seek this universal care. And I think it's really important, right, because like when, because, right, access to, to kindergarten, right, to to these kind of resources allow parents to be able to work, right, and, and not have to worry about, like, mm, is, is my mom going to be able to take care of my kids, right, or, or, yeah. or is somebody else going to be able to do that? So, like, that, that I think, right, is the a, is a first kind of big, big portion of it. It's like I need to be able to make money to take care of my family, right, and can't <laughs> go broke in the process of trying to do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so... And I don't know if that really kind of answers your question or if any of that really made sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, the, the simple, in terms of how, how a law like that came to be in a place like this, mm -hmm. well, there are plenty of people who could benefit from that service. And enough people were able to make the case that broke out of the typical political narrative, yeah. presumably through methods like yours, right? Just knock, knocking on doors and having conversations mm -hmm. that have gained enough popular support that it's in place. And what happens when you put laws in place that take care of people is that once they're there, even if you had to fight hard to get them in, once they're there, people like them. They tend to want to stay. Right, right. I think it's um, really, I, I think that's really interesting because like, people be like, uh, or uh, sometimes they like them, sometimes they're like, uh, I'm not going to fight because it's harder to get them out. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah it's harder to, to tear down a law. It happens piece by piece. And so um, uh, I think it's 
that that notion, but also it's like, okay, well, you know, I fought hard about it, but now we're on to the next big thing, right? Yeah. It's more about kind of, for some people, it's about stopping them before it happens, and they're not really worried about the fight after it gets into place. Right, 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 right. You also, a very odd phenomenon, right? But sometimes you'll see people literally, they, they'll be willing to hurt themselves in the process, right, just to keep other people down. Yeah. And that is what I think is. It's odd. madness. Very, very. I've only seen that from... I mean, I think we see it a lot, right? But I've seen it only from one specific representative in the Oklahoma legislature. Well, actually, maybe four. Um, oh, wow. uh, but, That's a big jump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, mm, if I'm critically thinking about this, yes. Um, uh, so, um, but I, I just find that an odd narrative. Like, I just want you to, I just want to keep you down so bad that I'm willing to go down with you. Yeah, yeah. If I have to hurt for this to make you hurt, then we'll both hurt. It's good. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then do you think, so now that the kids, the first group of four-year-olds who went through that program in 1998 are now in their 20s, right? They're like in their mid-20s. So all the studies about how powerful and important pre-K education is, yeah. all of them turn on like by the time they're in their 20s, they're doing better, they're earning more money, they are, they've been arrested fewer times, mm-hmm. they've, they've, they get sick less often, they're, you know, all, all kinds of things, right? So do you think that... Oklahoma, can you tell that Oklahoma is reaping any benefits from having invested in that so heavily in the 90s? Oh my goodness, I absolutely think so. Um, Because I just think about the students that I talk to, right, who are in college, some finishing up high school, like, um, oh, no, 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 yeah, yeah, in college now. Um, uh, Some kids that I was able to babysit, right, do, like, happy, healthy, right, And, and if not fully whether or not they're like fully there and intact, right, um, are actively seeking out things like therapy, right, to be able to remedy like what is not okay in their lives, right? right. Like fully, what we would want fully formed human beings, right, to, to be like, right, um, for the most part. And I think it's like evident with the people who are heavily invested in politics, right, or whether it's politics or just community, right, from the community gardens that are continuously sprouting up or people continuously creating spaces to have the critical conversations on how we do intersectional work, right, mm-hmm. like all of these different types of things, right. And so I'm excited. I'm, I'm really excited for everything in store for Oklahoma because of the younger generation. That is so good to hear. Yeah. God, that's so exciting to hear. I, I know, so I was looking at, you were elected this past fall, mm-hmm. and and because your district is, is fairly, we'll say a fairly liberal district, is that a, yeah. a fair assessment? In Oklahoma City, the primary that you had to get through first was like the more significant contest. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your margin of victory in that primary? I just looked at it. Um, uh, I think 150 votes we won by. Oh, wow. That's even more narrow than I had 248 votes, but you, 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 it was 150 is what it came down to? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, 200, 200. And I did say 100, 200. And it might be 48, not 50. Yeah, 200, though. Yes. That's what, I, that's what I found, but you probably have more accurate numbers than I do, honestly. But So I bring this up because so many people talk about not wanting to vote, mm-hmm. especially not you know in the local stuff where it's like even yeah. more of a slog. Yeah. Because like, oh, I just don't feel like my voice matters. Blah, blah, blah. And I look at this and like, you, you know, you're already in such a short time, such a powerful galvanizing voice in your community and frankly nationally because of your place in your community, right? And the fact that 248 votes was the difference between you being there and being able to be this figure. 
and advocate for the things on the platform you now have or not, right? You unseated an incumbent mm -hmm. by 248 votes. That to me is, is an astonishing and like really moving display of how much a single vote really does matter. What happened? What was the feeling like election night on the primary when you got, when you finally got over that hump and you realized, oh my God, we're going to win this thing. Here's the thing, that hump was kind of stretched out, right? And so oh um, uh, we are in this room, which I believe in the world of politics, they call, the, they call a war room. Yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so we're sitting <laughs> in this You gotta change that name. Uh, we, we really should. Um, I was like, somebody told it to me, and I was like, what? I, that's <laughs> something I've never heard of before. So, um, so we're sitting, I'm sitting back here with my mom and my nephew and my best friend James, who also does like all the graphics for the campaign. And um, uh, my campaign manager at the time was like, would like run in and out, um, like check in and then go out and like talk to the people because we did an in-person event, but like I'm extremely introverted. So like he had to twist my arm to make me have an in-person event. I was like, you know, I really like we could just do, like an online thing or something. <laughs> so we have this in-person event. We're sitting back, and he comes in and he's like, "Okay, right now he's kind of got us in the mail-in." And I said, "Okay, that's fine," because in my mind I've still got this whole mantra: like, your first election is about name recognition. Your second election is like when you win, right? So in my oh, mind wow. I was like, 2023 maybe. Oh my God, wow. we're running in 2022. I mean, in 2020 though. Right. Um, and so. Where he comes in, he does this, and honestly, I don't know if he ever came in again, really. I just, I don't remember that. The only thing I remember after he said he's getting us in the mail-in votes is, like, he comes in after polls have all closed, and he said, well, we did it. And I said, we're going to the, we're going to the November election. <laughs> and uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, we got him by, by about, um, uh, I think as of right now, like 200 votes or something. And so I was like, okay. And the, so this is when oh my, God. my mom looks at me and she's like, okay, she gives me a hug. She's got a couple of tears. And she said, now the work begins. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so it was like, we got there at the beginning and I was like, okay, we're probably going to lose. And then at the very end, he was like, we did it. So <laughs> that is, you know, I, on this, on this um, road trip I've been on, yeah. I've been talking with uh, candidates like yourself who, who won who maybe even weren't expecting to, but who won. But I'm also talking with candidates who ran and lost. Sometimes they lost in squeakers, and sometimes they lost by like 30%, you know, in like Northwest Arkansas, for instance, right? Yeah. And I think what's so powerful in what you're saying is that you ran with no expectation that you would or should win, right? You didn't have that, but, but you ran because A, you're building something longer term, mm -hmm. right? Like if I run now, in a couple years, we can get there. And then, of course, you, you sped that process up. But the other thing is you ran because it's like the fight needs to be fought now. Right. Like whatever happens in a couple of years doesn't matter. Like we start this fight now. We start planting seeds because we're not going to have trees in two years. We don't plant things right now. now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of the, the early childhood education thing we were just talking about, which is like if we want a better society later, yeah. we have to do the work now, even if it's not going to show up, even if it's not going to, even if we don't win mm -hmm. the primary or whatever, right? Yeah. That's just like such, I don't know, that kind of investment foresight that, I don't know, that really like gets me going. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's really exciting stuff. Well, thank you. I know 
you know, you talk about the future of Oklahoma, being excited about the future here mm-hmm. based on like the, the current sort of up and coming generation, which mm-hmm. I, I think you're kind of a part of, but, but even the younger ones, right? Thank you. <laughs> and so there's also the, the long history to contend with. And obviously there was just the 100 year anniversary of the, of the, race the Tulsa massacre, right? The, the Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was commemorated in ways both like very movingly and also very trivializing. And, you know, like everybody kind of had their, their way of talking about it. And in, as that was coming along, that was the first time I learned that the Oklahoma City Police Department and the Tulsa Police Department are numbers two and five, and five yeah. respectively, of the most violent police departments in the country. As a matter of fact, I have a statistic here that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. So the St. Louis Police Department is the worst, which will surprise nobody who remembers that Ferguson is basically St. Louis, yeah. right? So if you think about that, then you understand what St. Louis has kind of been going through for a long time. But Oklahoma City surprised me. Mm-hmm. The, the statistic is, so this is from the Mapping Violence, the Mapping Police Violence Project, which has put this, compiled this data. Yeah. So they said there is an average rate of 8.5 per 100,000. That is number, the Oklahoma Police Department kills 8.5 black men per 100,000 people on average a year. Mm-hmm which is a higher rate than the 2018 U.S. murder rate, which is 5.0 people per 100,000, meaning the police kill black men in Oklahoma City more often than murders happen in the U.S. at large, which I'm somebody who thinks a lot about police violence and has a viscerally hard time kind of stomaching it. Mm -hmm. I know I'm not alone in that. And that statistic still stops my heart. Yeah. And so you grew up in a smaller town, and now here you are in Oklahoma City, which is the biggest city in Oklahoma, right? Yes. And then Tulsa's the next biggest? I think by landmass, yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I guess I'm curious, how does that look on the ground? We can read those statistics, right? But that doesn't tell us what life is like here. Mm-hmm. And you, we talked about um, earlier the sort, of, the sort of politics of voter suppression through mm-hmm. intimidation, through violence, and things like that. Yeah. And the, the suppression of, you know, Oklahoma is reliably one of the most conservative voting states in the country. And it is hard for me not to believe that this isn't related. Mm-hmm. That the, the level, the extraordinary level of state-sponsored violence is not yeah. a part of the way votes happen. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what does it feel like to live here? That's the big thing, right? Is that... Um is that the world exists outside of House District 88, right? Um, And it makes me think about folks like Benny Edwards, Derek Scott, Isaiah Lewis, right? Um, So these are all three, one, a black boy and two black men who were killed um, uh, by, uh, by law enforcement in Oklahoma and and Terrence Crutcher, right? I think that was one of the cases that were seen like around the world and so many other ones, right? Um, But I think a couple of things, right? Is that seeing the way 
law enforcement kind of doubles down on that, right? I think specifically in these areas, right? Oklahoma City and, and Tulsa, right? When these things happen, how law enforcement really doubles down um, on trying to say, well, you know, like we're like, it's a stressful job. We're here to do this tough job and we have to make sure that nobody kills us. So we kill other people first, right? Or, right. or here's this class on how you repair your image after you're, after you kill somebody, right? Oh my goodness. Um, so, um, yeah, I think um, the law enforcement officer that killed Terrence Crutcher was then giving talks, I think, to other police departments about like how you move forward, like how you move beyond that, which, anyway. Um, uh, and so I, I think about the families um, that have to survive, but I think about the community effort that always goes into trying to, it feels weird to say trying to find justice, right? Because justice would be any of these people going home, right? Um, uh, to not leave a, a hole in a family, right? But I also think about things like with the Norman City Council, how they said, you know, we're hearing what you say, right, when, it talk, when we talk about caring for communities. And we understand that that means that we have to divest, right, from our policing system and reinvest into, into to public arts, right, into public resources. Because we understand, right, we understand that the, that the science tells us that our safest communities aren't ones that are over-policed, but ones with resources, right? That's what the science says. And so... Um, uh, so it's heartbreaking, right? Wait, um, that was Norman's city council that said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are they following through on that? Yeah, so last year they voted oh, on incredible. a budget that yeah reallocated some of their funds, which was absolutely amazing, right? But this week in Oklahoma City... And Norman's kind of very close to Oklahoma City. Yeah, it's about 32 minutes up the road. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Uh, who's counting? But yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, right? And so like it's great to see something like that happen. Um, but this year... Um, like just last week, uh, Oklahoma City voted on a budget which um, kept intact and I think probably gave the Oklahoma City Police Department a little bit more funding, if I remember correctly, right? Um, uh, and it's like, it's hard to kind of like wrap your mind around like, if this is like what science is telling us, like if this is what the numbers are telling us, right, and how we do our work, then why wouldn't we want to reinvest in other areas, right? Because what we're also telling people is that our jobs are tough and, and we have to do so many things that aren't, that aren't our job description, right? So why wouldn't you reinvest into the places that, that it is their job description yeah, to be able to do that Put that money work? somewhere else. Let some other people do that. Right. There are people whose jobs are those things that you don't want to have to do anymore. Right. And they don't carry guns when they do those things mm -hmm. and run a far less risk of shooting somebody. Right, but in, in some people's mind, right, the phrase defunding p the police, yeah. right, and it actually happening is a loss. And right. people don't like to lose. Law enforcement does not like to lose. No, they don't. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's heartening to hear that about Norman. I hadn't known, but, you know, Norman's a college town, so yeah. I guess that makes a degree of sense, right? It's like going to have a, a bit younger, more forward-looking community, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I know that you talk a lot about in your um, in your online presence. <laughs> you talk about um, I don't want to say justice reform because you found better language than that. At least recently, you did. Mm -hmm. 
but because I forgot what that language is. Oh, justice reimagining and rebuilding. Yeah, that's right. it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, justice reimagining. And and you said I'll, I I wrote this down because I like this. So justice reimagining means leaning away from fines, fees, shame, and incarceration. Mm-hmm. And that to me just seems so much more humane in so many ways. Like just kind of like, <laughs> like that's a society I'd rather live in. Me too. <laughs> and I know like, like your mom said, right? So you did the hard work of getting the nomination and then getting elected and now the work begins. And so now you are, did you just finish the first session or are you still winding down your first session in the legislature? So um, our sessions happen two years. So we finished the first part of this session. Oh, the first leg of the session. Yes. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. And so how are you finding as you propose bills mm-hmm. that, that will do some of these things, right? As you put forward ideas or as other members maybe put forward ideas that are contrary to that and you're able to speak up yeah. on behalf of a more humane world. How is that going so far? So in, in the community, I think the bills are wonderful for a lot of different reasons. Like the, the policy that I write is wonderful for a lot of different reasons, right? So I do this thing where I like to send it out to the folks um, that I think like are the experts on it. I'm like, hey, you tell me what you think like the community organizers who work around it, right? Right. Does this have as many lenses as possible, right? Is this, like, is this a good piece of policy or should we workshop it more? Would this accomplish our goals? Like putting it it like this, carving these rules out, would that actually get us towards the thing we want? Or or am I not seeing the consequences properly? Right, right. right. Um, So uh, to be able to to take that back to community and continue to work on it. Okay, so that's what I was saying. in the writing process, I'll do that, right? Um, and then once uh, we get through that process, once they get published, like if there was somebody I missed that was like, oh, okay, like this is a really great policy. I like that you did this, right? Or maybe we should do this, like then we can add in amendments. So I like that. Um, and I get that continuous process because um, after we write a bill, uh, then committee chairs will figure out if they want to hear it or not. Well, it'll be assigned to a committee. The chair and the vice chair will figure out if they want to hear it or not. I didn't get that process. Um, uh, nobody uh, wanted to hear my bills this year, right? And so, oh, you mean the bills that you sent out in the community and got back drafts on that you were excited about? The committee chairs were like, Maury, thanks, but no. Yeah, they're like, mm, maybe you should do an interim study. I'm like, do you interim study your bills? Absolutely oh, not. Anyways, wow. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so some folks said, like, maybe you should do an interim study. Some folks were like, okay, here's X, Y, and Z, what's wrong with your bill? Um, I would fix them, and then they're like, I still, I'm still not going to do it. Some folks wouldn't talk to me at all about my bills, right? It was in their committee, and they wouldn't talk to me at all about the bills. And is that common? Is that, do you feel like you're getting no. regular treatment, or do you feel like you're getting iced specially? I'm going to go with the latter. Wow. Um, uh, and... One bill in particular, I, it was assigned to my committee, a committee that I'm on, right? Criminal Justice and Corrections. I love that you got on that committee, by the way. Kudos. Yeah, I, I'm going to thank my uh, previous floor leader for that. So, um, but I, that, it was what I wanted. So, um, so I'm on the Criminal Justice and Corrections Committee. One of my bills was assigned to Criminal Justice and Corrections, and it was a bill that would standardize hiring practices for law enforcement across the board in Oklahoma, because it looks different from each municipality. Right. Um, right. Uh, so there's kind of a weakest link in the chain phenomenon where some departments have 
extremely lax requirements and then they get pretty, pretty yeah. poor candidates. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and so um, that, but also just trying to like make sense of it all, right? So uh, science also tells us, right, that your brain isn't fully developed until 25, right? And in some places, like we've got folks, like you can become a law enforcement officer at 21. Um, uh, I think in, they tried to lower the age to 18 to become a corrections officer is like in some county jails, I believe, too. Oh my God. No, um, uh, and so um, doing that um, uh, also in some places you have to um, take a psychological evaluation uh, and in some places that looks like you passing a lie detector test, which is not based in science. So, um, so got rid of some things. In some places, like they're like, "Can you finish the slushy in ten minutes?" Okay, you're good. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that's it, right? Um, and so it would just kind of standardize all of those types of things um, uh, and do away with some of those things. So. I uh, am talking to my committee chair after uh, committee one day, and I said, hey, I know my, because my bill at this point in time had been reassigned. It was taken from a different committee and moved here, uh-huh. and I didn't ask for that. So, so I talked to my committee chair at the end of our meeting, and I said, hey, um, I know that my bill is in this committee. I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, and he was like, uh, he said, yeah, I looked at your bill. I've got some corrections on it and I said okay so I followed him back to his office grab uh, he had his legislative assistant hand me my bill which just said kill across the top of it oh my god um oh uh, my god and I think the funny thing about it is right like when we talk about if I'm being treated differently than other people right is that um I talked about it to some folks in the caucus and I and one of the things I heard back was, oh, yeah, like, he said the same thing to me. And I said, oh, he wrote kill across your bill, too? Like, that's just what he does? And she was like, oh, well, no, he just sent me an email that said, like, I wouldn't be getting a committee hearing. But, you know, and I was like, with all due respect, that is not the same thing at all. <laughs> um, so, like, having to have those kinds of conversations, too. Um, uh, but, yeah, right. Um, and so uh, this process, right, the committee process is also very gate kept yeah um uh and so um so i i I didn't get to a place where i could even have bills heard um one committee chairman asked me how i checked the genitalia like how he's supposed to check the genitalia of a non-binary person right like fucking kidding me yeah no (laughs) Um, uh, like one of your colleagues an elected person said this to you? Yeah. So one of my bills was to God, add a... I just a, feel like I'd be so violent in that moment. I would, that's so disrespectful. Yeah. As one of my uh, bills was to add more inclusive language, right, for all state-issued paperwork and IDs, right? Um, so gender markers, specifically. Uh-huh. Um, and so... So he looked at me and he was like, well, uh, he said, say you're in a wreck and you're unrecognizable. I said, okay, this is wonderful. Um, uh, <laughs> is this like a fantasy that we're going here? What are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, please yeah. don't say that. Um, uh, yeah, so he said, say you're in a wreck and you're unrecognizable, right? So I know what I'm looking for on a man's body and I know what I'm looking for on a woman's body, but what am I supposed to look for on a non-binary person's body? And I was like... That's a, that's it. The bill is about IDs. That's the point of an ID. Um, I mean, we've also got dental records and, and DNA and all these types of things, right? And I've, I don't know who's sending you to a crash to yeah. check those things. Also, it's like, well, 
I looked at the genitalia of this charred corpse, and so I could narrow it down to 50% of the population. So I guess we just have to go from there. Right. And like, that's this the thing. This guy's like, concerns what's are like point? really in the wrong place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was like, okay. And he was like, I just really like to see you do an interim study on it. And I said, okay. Okay, bro. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you, see you next time. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it, it, so that was a tangent. The point, right, is that the legislative process in Oklahoma is. Um, the gatekeepers are folks who are not inclusive, right? And so it'll be a while before I make policy change in the house, right? But until then, we've got so much more work to do in community, right? And we're yes. starting so many conversations here, right? And also right. getting that work done too. So um, just not in a policy form, right? So this leads me to the, a question that I've, I've been asking a lot of people as I've been meeting folks across the country. You know, it strikes me that in addition to what you're describing now, which is this gatekeeping process within the halls of the legislature, mm -hmm. and you know, elected officials derive their support from the people who vote for them. Yeah. And that means like both in terms of partisan politics, like who's heading the committees, mm -hmm. but it also means in terms of like how much support you have in terms of being able to stand in there and say the things that need to be said and speak truth and know that your constituents are gonna have your back. Yeah. And there is the function of, I mean, you haven't talked about this, but I can only imagine you may be getting some pretty nasty feedback from the population at large. Is that fair to say? You sort of smiled when I yeah. said that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, whenever people ask, there's always like this one um, voicemail that I think about. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's kind of like ironically funny. It was the very first e voicemail that I received that was, I think I was like in the office for probably like three days at this point in time or something, or I don't know. Um, but it's this woman, this little old woman who calls, and she is, and it was like, it was fun, like comical, but also like a little painful because she is like leaving this voicemail and is like, you know, you're doing some things, and if if that's what you want to do, then go to someplace like Oregon or New York or California. We don't do that here. And then she said, well, I'm not saying leave. Um, I'm not saying you don't have a place here. But, oh, um, and so to hear her kind of like grapple with, wow, I am saying like some, some xenophobic or some, some bigoted things, right? But I'm not saying like leave and don't come back. I'm just saying that's not what we do here. But also, wait, I am telling you to leave. Yeah. And like, so to hear her kind of like go back and forth on that was very interesting. And I, <laughs> I listen to it every now and then. You saved it? Oh my God. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe after the interview, you'll play it for me. And um, so like things like that, I'm like, wow, like some of it is so deep rooted that there are some folks who don't realize because they've stayed in this very bubble-esque place that allows them to say the most heinous things and get away with it, right? Or, or think things, right, that they don't think is heinous, right? Or right. bad, There have been I no say. consequences for them saying kind of whatever they want. Yeah. Um, and so then to be like, oh, wait, but when I say it to, to, the, like, to the group, right, or to the person that, I, like, that is targeted, right, then I, I don't feel as comfortable, right? Because deep down inside, you know it's wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, things like that, right? But honestly, I get messages like that far less 
than I get of messages from folks who are like, thank you so much for, oh, really? like, yeah, thank you so much for standing up. Thank you for being representation. And, and those come from everybody's district. So, um, well, that's uh, really heartening to hear. So, so what I was going to ask is, you know, given the hurdles that you face at work in the legislature, mm -hmm. and given what at least some, and thankfully from what you're saying, a, a minority of the feedback can be hostile, yeah. what does support look like for you? Like, what, what is it that people can do or say or offer so that you can feel supported and be supported as you stand in these unreceptive spaces and do mm -hmm. work that really needs to be done? Mm -hmm. That's a good question, right? Um, and I think about a couple of different things. One of those is, uh, well, first of all, one of my top languages of love is quality time. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so like that was one of I the things. I should start asking this in terms of love languages. That's a good cue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and so for me, one of the most moving things about the whole campaign process, right, the campaign trail is that people I never knew before would like show up and be like, yeah, I'm going to make some phone calls with you or yeah, I'm going to send some text messages with you or yeah, I want to write some postcards. I'm like, you wanted to spend time with me and do that? Like that I love, right? And, and oh. that's also one of the things, right, is that people with finances, right, to be able to throw at candidates or, or throw at, at any nonprofit or charity or, or whatever, right, do so because we also understand that fundamentally our time is more valuable than our dollar. Yeah. Um, and so if they've got the means and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that, but, right, the most powerful capital, right, I think is, is time. And so when people are like, like we had moms that were like, I'm, I'm making dinner for my kids right now, but I'm here to make phone calls too, mm. right? Like we had folks that were like, uh, you know, I just had a baby last week, right? But I want to send some text messages with you, you know? And so that not only like logistically helps you and helps mm -hmm. your campaign, but also just charges your personal battery. Yes. Yeah. That's, I think I love doing the work, especially in community because like even at a young age, that was my release, right? That was my stress relief was, was, volunteering, right, was giving back because I got to spend that quality time. Yeah. So I um, love that you put it in terms of stress. I think some people who haven't necessarily done their first phone banking or whatever mm -hmm. can look at that stuff and feel a little stressed or have a little anxiety about it. You know, that first time can be kind of tough, but I love that you put it in terms of like you got to a point pretty quickly with it where it's stress relief. Mm -hmm. I, get, I get to go in and spend some quality time yeah. with people that I'm down with for causes that matter to me, mm -hmm. like that feels good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. I absolutely love it. Um, and so I think that is a big thing, right? And people, I love the power of a small dollar donor for a few reasons because um, uh, we have to file ethics reports. And once people start donating over $50, then you have to like, it becomes real tedious. There's a lot 50 of- 50 bucks. Yeah. So I'm always like, Love small dollars. You want to give me two dollars? You want to give me? You want to give me a dollar? <laughs> Save me some paperwork. <laughs> like, um, uh, and so, um, uh, donations always really help. But small dollar donors, um, and then also I think that works double, like a double sided way, right? Because like a lot of people will focus on large dollar donors and corporations, right? And that lets people know they're like, okay, those are the dollars that you value, right? And so that's the work that you value. And so people, it's also I guess part of that like mentality of voter suppression, right, um, uh, or community engagement suppression because 
if you're not valuing my two dollars, my one dollar, mm. right, then I don't think that you care about what how I fit into this narrative or this work, mm. right? And so, donations are wonderful, right? But the value of small dollar donations is powerful, right? We unseated a, a guy with a hundred and forty thousand dollars in the bank, I think, with twenty three thousand dollars. Oh my God, that is a huge, yeah, you know, difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, amazing. And, and it's because I'm a community organizer. I can't make a dollar, but I can stretch a dollar, right? And so we were able to, because my team right, was comprised of community organizers, right? And so we knew how to get this work done. We had never organized on a digital aspect before. And so we all got to learn that together. The root of it all, right, is connecting with people and where they are, right? And in the pandemic, it was online for a good portion of, of it was online via phone calls, um, or text messages, things like that. So, um, uh, like the the number right that we won by, we were able to train volunteers on relational organizing, and that this aspect of being able to talk to your friends and family about like why you care about something yeah. and be able to move them, and we identified roughly 250 new voters right because of that right and that was how we won because the power me? of relational organizing so you, I kid you, you not can trace like okay so we did this work we found identified roughly 250 new voters mm -hmm. through this particular tactic mm -hmm. and oh our margin of victory was 248 look at that yeah yeah incredible yeah so it's nice to know that that works okay so mm -hmm. so quality time small dollar donations mm -hmm. are your love language <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you have this thing on your website that says creating a top 10 state, which I love the way states have rivalries with each other. Like we want to be a top 10 state. Yeah. Creating a top 10 state means we actively care for all Oklahoma residents and create a place for each other to thrive. Mm -hmm. And that just struck me because that is such a concisely stated worldview that is really actionable in policy. Like you can see where the policy does that or not does that. Like it's an easy test. Do you find that people are basically receptive to that core message when you, when you tell it to them? Or do you find that people get a little edgy about it? No, I think that's, um, I think that's the thing, right? Like, like I said, meeting people where they are with language. People want a place to live that is good for them, right? That makes them feel good, right? Yeah. People, people want more access to the world, not less, right? Want to be able to move and thrive. And I remember driving down the street with my mom one day, and I am very like, give me some tasks to complete, and I can complete them. Uh, and my mom, so I, like, it was like probably after my freshman year of college or something like that. And so I'm just like. We're riding down the road, and I'm like, so I look at her, and I'm like, what do you what do you want from us? Like, what do you want your kids to do, right? Because yeah. um, I was like, have I, have I chosen the right career path? In my mind, I was just, like, going through so many things because I had just been introduced to sociology. So I was like, wait a minute, what? More things exist out here? Um, uh, and so, um, so I was like, what, what is it that you want? And my mom looks at me, and she says, I don't want you to do anything specific, right? I just want, I don't want my kids to just survive. I want them to thrive. Mm -hmm. I want them to flourish, right? And those are the, t those are the things I continuously talk about, mm -hmm. right? Because I want to create an Oklahoma, right? Where people don't just survive, where they thrive, where they yeah. flourish, right? I want that because 
my community because Oklahoma is an extension of my family, right? The Oklahoma is small town, right? I, yeah. It feels like everybody knows everybody in Oklahoma, not just like in a certain town. I believe it. So, um, uh, and that's what I want, right? That's what my mom wants for me and that's what I want to create, right? It is a place where people can pour into themselves and their communities, right? And don't feel drained at the end of a work day, right? Um, and so, I don't know, right? Like. I don't know. Well, I could tell you, you know, the, the, the tagline I've, I've come up with for this podcast. <clears throat> oh, wait, sorry. Oh, yes, that no. was what I was going to say. Oh, hit me. Yeah. Um, uh, and so um, also like within this, right, is that like, it almost feels like states are kind of like groups or friends or whatever. And so like in your state, there's always like this running joke with people in politics because our governor always talks about it being a top 10 state. It's like, Oklahoma's going to be a top 10 state. And we're like, you know, we could have that, right? If you actually put yeah, some yeah. decent policy on the books, right? So <laughs> that's, that's not just a dream, man. That's, that's possible. Right. So, so we will often talk about, you know, if we really want to be a top 10 state, then we've got to do the work, right? Yeah. Or our state slogan or something now is imagine that, which is hilarious. But, mm, imagine so, that. Right. But yeah. So the, the, um, the, the tagline I've come up with for this podcast is that I'm, I'm trying to help make local representation sexy. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and what I mean by that, you know, I think sexiness is a, is a, is a malleable term. I say that a lot. I think it's got to be, right? Because uh, what, what I mean by that is I think that there is a, there's a version of America and there are plenty of people who have been increasingly powerful for the last few decades that want everyone to watch out for themselves. Mm-hmm. They want people to make sure that they themselves are thriving, right? It's the Ayn Rand school of governing. Yeah. Right? Like make sure, make sure you're watching out for number one and literally exactly only number one. Mm-hmm. And I think that people actually love watching out for each other. I think when people understand or believe that they're going to bat for somebody else, then that lights them up. And I think that when we decide we're going to watch out for each other and decide that, oh, there's people who aren't getting watched out for right now, that's my job to Mm -hmm. go watch out for them, to like make this work. And not in a parental way where like you sit tight and don't get to say anything while I speak up on your behalf, right? Yeah. To make sure that you get them heard, you get them listened to you get them a platform so they can say what they need and then get it for them right and i think at the end of the day that there's nothing sexier than that and the way you talk about wanting to create an oklahoma where everyone can thrive everyone can flourish not just like me or like my friends or whatever right that i don't think there is a sexier vision for Oklahoma than the one where everybody gets to flourish. See what I mean? So you're crushing it. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Making it sexy. Um, before we wrap today, mm-hmm. I want to give you the opportunity to, to let everybody know just what's like the biggest thing on your heart, on your mind? Like what are you kind of thinking about that you would like people to walk away chewing on for themselves mm-hmm. on this hot summer day? Wow, that's a good one. I think I think the ultimate thing, right, is that there is a place for everybody in the movement, right? There's a, a place for everybody in, in freedom dreaming and liberation, right? And by that I mean like you don't have to like don't don't let community organizing or politics scare you away because you can't show up in the way that's most visible to everybody, right? Like if if you don't 
want to be a politician, you don't have to be a politician, right? You can be a top tier volunteer, right? You mm. can be a numbers cruncher, right? Like you can do all of these things. And a lot of people are like, oh, no, politics, I don't know how to do that. It's got nothing to do with me. And whatever you're doing right now, there's a part like politics touches, right? And, and there's a way that you can really shift the narrative of, of what government looks like, right, from, from your throne, right, your place of power, right? And so, um, and I think over time, right, it allows those skills to grow and develop too, right? So you can move into other places in the movement too, right? If something, if the shoe doesn't quite fit, right, there's a, another place that you can go, right? right? If you are an organizer, right? If you're just like, oh, I'm, I can, I'm a really good trainer, right? Or, or different parts, right? And always space to learn and grow together. And so I think that's my big thing, right? Don't shy away from getting involved because you're not doing what everybody else like out front is doing because there's work everywhere mm -hmm. in every way. And so I think that is the most important thing, right? And the sooner you start, right, the better you get, the faster you get, so. <laughs> there's a place for you somewhere. Yeah. This has been an absolute delight. Maury Turner, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today. As I mentioned in the intro, Maury Turner is running a re-election right now. And as you heard in the interview, small dollar donations are their love language. So if you were inspired by this person and their work, their website is MauryTurner.com. I'm linking to that in the show notes, as well as links to the four victims of police violence that Maury mentioned, Terrence Crutcher, Benny Edwards, Derek Scott, and Isaiah Lewis, and to the Mapping Police Violence Project. I'm also going to link to Heather McGee's podcast because she is brilliant and doing important work. This episode was produced by me, Brian Hester. Theme music by the Castell Brothers. A huge thank you to Representative Maury Turner. You can find them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at MauryTurnerOK. You can also follow us on Twitter at Local Selection and on Instagram at Local Selection Podcast. And there is an election coming up very soon, and it's not too late to get a few more people excited enough to turn out and vote. That's the whole point of this show. If you found something inspiring in this episode, please uh, share it with a friend, rate us, review us on the podcast apps, you know, glowingly, of course, and um, obviously subscribe to this feed so you can catch new episodes when they come out. And additionally, um, we have these cool shirts that say local representation is sexy, you can wear those and let everyone know what's up. We also have a Patreon where you can support links to both of those things in the show notes and on our website, localselectionpodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and see you next time in a new neighborhood. Neighborhood.